Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Today, we'll hear from folks who have moved to Appalachia as a refuge during the pandemic. And so we brought the property site unseen with only 12 photos on the listing. And West Virginia's New River Gorge was recently designated as a national park. A change will likely attract even more visitors, but it will also cut hunting rights in part of the park. But I learned how to hunt in the gorge, you know, with my father, and uh, that's where I learned trees, that's where I learned direction. It's just a beautiful place. I mean, something about watching the fog rise and hearing the roar of the river and the sunset. I mean, it's not just about the hunting. And we'll find out how a 91-year-old restaurant in downtown Roanoke is coping with new growth all around it. What's kept you coming back? Because it's never changed. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Maybe you caught the recent Saturday Night Live sketch, spoofing a pandemic-fueled passion for browsing real estate listings. Are you bored? Looking for something to spice up your life? Oh, yeah. The real estate market across the country is hot right now, and it's no joke even in parts of Appalachia that have lagged behind trendier destinations. Raymond Joseph, the CEO of the West Virginia Association of Realtors, says he's been hearing from lots of people in cities looking to buy second homes in Appalachia. They look at this like, you know, I can go buy some land, I can have a house, I can ride my four-wheeler, I can hike. A lot of communities are welcoming these home buyers. After all, many parts of Appalachia are losing population. New residents often bring new economic energy. But will these new residents stay? And if so, how might they change the culture? Will our infrastructure, roads, schools be able to support them? Our producer, Roxy Todd, spoke with three different people in the churn of the Appalachian real estate market, beginning with a woman who lives in my home community of Floyd County, Virginia. Last summer, 34-year-old Bijou Finney and her husband, Drew, packed up everything they owned in Austin and headed east. They'd just become the owners of a 75-acre homestead in southwest Virginia. I had never been to Virginia in my entire life, and so we brought the property site unseen with only 12 photos on the listing. Their mortgage is about the same as rent in downtown Austin. Bijou runs her own video production business. Drew works in the tech industry. They can both do their jobs remotely, and for a couple of years, they've been itching to get out of the city. We were really um, interested in learning how to live off the land and be more sustainable, have a simpler life. At first, it was just this idea they had. Then in March, they began putting their dream into motion, looking at real estate online. I think when the pandemic hit, it really, really got the fire lit under us to want to go and do this. She and Drew had a list of things they knew they wanted, preferably not too close to an ocean to avoid hurricanes, and not out west with so much land vulnerable to forest fires. And um, it was actually really hard to find something that was affordable and headland and had water and had internet in the United States. When they drew circles around the swaths of land that were the least likely to be hit by climate disasters, they settled on someplace in Appalachia. Being more connected to nature has really helped my state of mind and, and my health, definitely. And we've only been here since June, so this is all still very new to me. The Finneys are still learning to live in a rural community. Bijou learned how to use a wood stove via Zoom from the former homeowner. 
She says a few of her friends in Texas have been following her journey and are interested in moving to a rural community, too. And she's met at least three people in Floyd who have recently moved there from out of state. I do see a smaller kind of back to the land movement happening like it did in the 60s and 70s. A hundred miles north in Lewisburg, West Virginia, Erin Gutierrez and her husband are getting settled into their house, which they purchased back in January. It's twice as big as what our house was in Florida. Erin was a teacher. And when the pandemic hit, she decided to retire early since she had some medical complications. Then tragedy hit. She and her husband lost their son in a motorcycle accident. Soon after that, Erin's mom died from COVID-19. These losses made her question a lot about her life. I realized that you just don't know in this life what's going to happen. And so you have to you have to take those risks and and make it what you want it to be. Erin and her husband decided to move closer to their daughter and her family in Thomas, West Virginia. Their house in Florida sold the day it went on the market. Her husband drove up to West Virginia, put a bid on a house he liked, and they moved in the next month. So far, she loves it. Lots of trees, and then the open space in the back where we, we see deer, cows up on the hill. We love cows. <laughs> The town where they bought their home, Lewisburg, is one of the more popular destinations in the state. But for the first time ever, every geographic region in the state is experiencing a housing shortage, says Raymond Joseph, CEO of the West Virginia Association of Realtors. People want to come to West Virginia right now. We're seeing that all over the state. There simply aren't enough homes to keep up with demand. And that's putting extra pressure on people like Olivia Morris, who has been struggling to find her dream home in West Virginia's New River Gorge. She's 31 years old and wants to stay here in her home state. But she's starting to question if she can afford it. She loves the area for its rock climbing, its swimming, and hiking. I really wanted to live within the town of Fayetteville. And you have a great downtown and Main Street, lots of different things to do and places to eat by just walking down the street or riding your mountain bike (laughs) through the woods to get there. Then when the pandemic hit, Olivia says it just felt like things went nuts. And now you have people who are coming in and just like buying up property left and right, like, and it hurts. Now Olivia is looking at communities outside Fayetteville, hoping to find something in her price range, around $70,000. She says she totally gets why people would want to move to this area. In fact, a lot of her professional work is focused on helping more young people stay in the state. It is really good for West Virginia that people are moving here, but it also is hard. And it's like two things can exist at the same time. And those are the two realities that are existing for me. Olivia says she's committed to staying in this area even if it means she has to keep renting a room for a few more years. Because this isn't just about finding a house. It's about staying in a community that she feels a part of. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Roxy Todd. Back in the mountains, people are friendly. They all say howdy when you pass them by. Back in the mountains, your word is your honor. A handshake is the contract for the things that you buy. Back in As Roxy mentioned in that story, 
West Virginia's New River Gorge is really hot right now for home buyers, and it looks set to get even more popular. The gorge has long been a destination for tourists and outdoor adventurers. This area was originally given federal protection as a national river in 1978. Then, last year, it became West Virginia's first national park. The new designation will bring more people to the gorge, and some new challenges too. Less land will be open for hunting, while more visitors will place an additional burden on the infrastructure within the park and in the communities around it. Reporter Duncan Slade spoke with a few of the people who will be affected by these changes. Robert C. is a fishing and hunting guide in southern West Virginia. He's been hunting in the River Gorge since he was born. It's just a beautiful place. I mean, something about watching the fog rise and hearing the roar of the river and the sunset. I mean, it's not just about the hunting, you know? I mean, I mean, you know, it, the, the deer or the game is just a bonus. It's being there, you know, doing what your family's done, where you learn to do it at. C's family has been hunting here almost a century, but now that tradition is changing. 10% of the New River Gorge will become a national park. Now, national parks are strict, no hunting. C can still hunt on the rest, but he's losing access to the land he learned to hunt on. This park section is in the north, near the iconic New River Gorge Bridge, and is some of the most difficult terrain around. And the reason people do not hunt and fish it as much, because it is rugged, it is tough hunting, it is tough country. And that's why those deer are there. That's why those animals are there, because they're not easy to get to. He says he understands the decision, but it feels like he's lost his first love. But I learned how to hunt in the gorge. You know, it's my father, and that's where I learned trees. That's where I learned direction. While hunters are losing access, the new park status is expected to improve the local economy. In 2019, visitors to the New River Gorge spent $60 million in the surrounding community, and the national park designation is expected to increase the number of visitors. Rafting companies are some of the biggest supporters of the park's new status. We expect to see an increase. I think it'll be gradual. Haynes Mansfield works at Ace Adventure Resort. Ace is one of the big rafting outfitters in the gorge. According to commercial whitewater reports, the number of river users has declined since the 90s. But last summer, they saw an uptick. Um, honestly, the, the big increase that we've seen lately has been a cultural shift that was driven by COVID-19. Lockdowns closed the rafting industry in the spring. We were shut down. Um, we had no bookings. And then we had record sales, um, record website visits, phone calls, uh, phones ringing off the hook. This surge in visitors was also seen at hikes and popular sites for rock climbing, according to Eve West, a spokesperson with the Park Service. Mara Kistler also noticed the crowds. She's the owner of Waterstone Outdoors. It's an outdoor gear and climbing shop in Fayetteville. Kistler says the increase highlighted existing problems with an underfunded park infrastructure. And I am excited about it, but I am concerned. You know, these are not mutually exclusive. She says the park needs more trails and more parking lots so visitors can experience the beauty she gets to see every day. We don't want more people if we're not treating the resource properly and we're not providing a good experience. We don't want to send people home frustrated and annoyed. The recent legislation authorizes the park to buy up to 100 acres of land for parking lots, but provides no additional funding. That's determined by the National Park Service. Supporters of the new park status hope it brings more funding, but nothing is concrete so far. Hunters, rafters, rock climbers, hikers, and tourists alike come to the gorge for different reasons. 
Mansfield, the rafting outfitter, says he was drawn to the area by this wide variety of world-class outdoor activities. And that's why we're a national park, right? But look at all of those those communities that have to be served fairly, and uh, it's not an easy task. <laughs> In the years to come, the balancing act of who gets to access and who gets to use this land will continue in the New River Gorge, and who's going to pay for it. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Duncan Slade. Communities across Appalachia have used outdoor adventure as a marketing tool to get new visitors, and new residents too. The city of Roanoke, Virginia used its location in the Blue Ridge Mountains, along with new apartments downtown, to attract millennials and reverse decades of population loss. But while the change is good for the city's energy and bottom line, it can be disconcerting too. Our next story is about a business that's been a stalwart through all the changes. Ever since the 30s, customers have been able to walk into the Texas Tavern and order two and a bowl with. If you're not familiar with the tavern's lingo, that translates to two hamburgers and a bowl of chili beans with onions. The Texas Tavern recently celebrated its 91st birthday. I visited to find the secret of its longevity. Church bells ring in lunch hour on a Tuesday in downtown Roanoke. Spring is showing, so despite the pandemic, people are out and about and the Texas Tavern is doing brisk business. How's the elevator business? Up and down, buddy. Up and down. <laughs> Banter here is just part of the appeal. The diner is tiny. It's only got 10 seats, and right now they're all blocked off with yellow caution tape. But its crisp red and white paint scheme, retro signs, and the unmistakable smell of its grill practically dominate the larger buildings around it. Mark Saunders started coming here back in the 70s. He still orders the same thing. Either it's two with, a bowl and a drink, or a cheesy western, a bowl and a drink. What's kept you coming back? Because it's never changed. The Texas Tavern small menu offers up blue-collar classics like chili dogs, small hamburgers, and the cheesy western. A hamburger with a scrambled egg and the tavern's signature relish. Regulars tend to be passionate about their favorites. Two hot dogs and a chili bean. Cheeseburger. The cheesy western, number one, Texas Tavern. The price is right, too. The Cheesy Western is the most expensive item on the menu, $2.85. Owner Matt Bullington is the fourth generation of his family to run the joint. My great-grandfather, Nick Bullington, he had been an advanced man for the Ringland Brothers Circus and the Gentry Dog and Pony Show. And he had his own railroad car. He traveled all over the country. Nick Bullington was out on the road in the 1920s when he discovered White Castle, an emerging chain restaurant that sold small hamburgers first fast food. Bar stool, diner, open all night, hamburgers, was like the cutting edge concept in 1920, 1930. He decided to make a go of it in the diner business and opened the Texas Tavern in Roanoke in 1930. The Great Depression was taking hold, but the Norfolk and Western Railway had its headquarters there, which gave him a built-in customer base. Times were hard, but uh, it, was, it was a really fast-growing city with good economic potential. Roanoke has changed dramatically since those days. Railroad jobs are mostly gone. Downtown has completely transformed, from office buildings to rental apartments for a new, younger set. Texas Tavern's competition used to be other diners. 
Now it sits alongside upscale international cuisine and craft breweries. And all that was before the pandemic hit. There's more people living downtown. Of course, during COVID, it's just, it's, it's a kind of a ghost town down here. The pandemic has forced even more change. The taverns take out only now, for one thing. And Bullington's customers are craving constancy. And it's kind of one of those places people like to come back to. As everything else changes, the food stays the same. You walk in, looks like it did in 1950 or 1970 or 1990. Since he took over in 2005, Bullington has added sausage gravy to the menu and replaced an old cigarette vending machine with a vintage Coke cooler. That's about it. And that's the way regulars like it. Here's Mark Saunders again on why he keeps coming back. People constantly won't change, but change is not always good. Yeah. This is the same food that his dad sold back then, and it's never changed. And, and that's what keeps most of the people around here coming back. So while Roanoke is seeing new growth and an evolving economy, the Texas Tavern is chugging toward its 100th birthday in 2030, doing what it's always done, selling inexpensive comfort food in a setting that looks pretty much the same as when it opened. Somebody that didn't understand the business might think, oh, you should modernize this and open up and create more seats because we only have 10 stools. But you'd be losing something, you'd be missing something. That something would be a foundational piece of Roanoke culture and cuisine, a link to the past that gives comfort in the present. When it comes to major weather events, here in Appalachia, we're somewhat sheltered. We don't have to worry quite as much about hurricanes and wildfires, for example, but we're hardly immune to flooding and mudslides. Kentucky and other parts of Appalachia were recently hit by severe floods and are still recovering. Across the country, more than 4 million homes are at risk of major flood damage. Scientists say climate change is driving a lot of this flooding, and poorer people stand to lose the most. NPR's Rebecca Hersher reports. Pastor Aaron Trigg cannot say enough good things about Raynell, West Virginia, where he used to live. People were just happy and joyous and had a lot of expectation for the future. Raynell is small. About 1,500 people live there. It's got a school and a grocery store and a couple stoplights, and it's in a steep valley with a creek running through it. In the summer of 2016, there was a lot of rain, and the creek started rising. And you could hear the water up in the mountains crashing trees. And next thing you know, it was at our waist. It was evening. Trigg's house was already underwater, so he took shelter on the second floor of his neighbor's house. You could hear people screaming and hollering for help. It was a real restless night, a real just no peace at all. I did a lot of praying that night. Trigg was rescued by boat in the morning. In all, at least 23 people in West Virginia died in the floods. More than 1,000 homes were destroyed. Raynell was decimated. It's one of hundreds of small towns across the country where climate-driven flooding is an existential threat. New data from the First Street Foundation, a climate risk nonprofit, shows that more than 4 million homes are at risk for expensive flood damage. They're concentrated on the coasts and in Appalachia, although there are hot spots across the country. And the homeowners who will be hit the hardest are those who can't afford flood insurance. Matthew Eby is the executive director of the First Street Foundation. In America, flood insurance 
for the vast majority of the population is provided through FEMA's National Flood Insurance Program. And that flood insurance doesn't cost the right amount. That's according to FEMA. Every month, homeowners who have flood insurance pay a monthly premium. But those monthly premiums don't even come close to covering the actual cost of flood damage for most houses. The government always has to pick up the tab, which is why the National Flood Insurance Program has racked up more than $36 billion in debt. And it's one reason that developers keep building homes in dangerous places. To help fix all of that, FEMA is going to start raising the price of flood insurance later this year. But to actually keep up with the costs of climate change, the new data suggests that flood insurance rates would need to more than quadruple in the next 30 years, which would put flood insurance out of reach for many, if not most, families. So there'll be a ton of properties without policies that are just waiting for that that unfortunate event to happen. And then we're going to see a lot of actual economic pain because they won't have the ability to then fix the home. FEMA says the group's analysis is, quote, premature because FEMA hasn't released the full details of its new pricing scheme. But what research makes clear is that when large numbers of people don't have insurance or savings after a disaster, the effects can ripple through a community. That's exactly what happened in Raynell after the 2016 flood. Pastor Aaron Trigg was getting calls late at night from his congregants. The way I could say it is they were hopeless because they, a lot of people in Raynell were poor and they didn't have insurance. They didn't have any way to have any backup plan. He says a lot of people left town. Trigg stuck around for a few years before he too moved away for a new job. A lot of homes were never rebuilt. Today, entire blocks of Main Street are empty of businesses. John Wyatt is a city councilman and a pastor and a musician, flood survivor and the owner of a music store in Reno. He's also running for mayor. And like any good mayoral candidate, he's a booster for his town. We're a bona fide Appalachian community. And uh, and we have a lot to offer. For example, he'd like to see Raynell host an Appalachian music festival. There are some barriers. The only motel in town has been closed since the flood nearly five years ago. But Wyatt has a vision of Raynell as a tourist destination. Maybe if the water cooperates. If we ever have another flood like that, I can't see, uh, I just really cannot see our town surviving. I mean, it just. He trails off and picks up his guitar. Greenbrier County, West Virginia, like the Prince Emanuel's land, with your It's been a year since the coronavirus pandemic set in across America, but the arrival of vaccines is providing hope. And West Virginia has captured national attention for the relative success of its rollout. We'll find out more about what's working and why in just a minute. You're Inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. We'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia, 
with career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. West Virginia's vaccine rollout so far is being called a massive success by political leaders. And it's true that per capita, the state has one of the highest rates of vaccine distribution in the world. West Virginia was the first in the nation to complete its second round of COVID-19 vaccinations at all nursing homes and assisted living facilities statewide. So what's working? Well, as NPR's Noel King sees it, it all started with identifying the right problem. I'll let Noel take it from here. Let's discuss West Virginia. West Virginia has administered almost 450,000 doses of COVID-19 vaccine. Over 9% of the population has gotten not just one, but both doses. That is really good. It and Alaska go back and forth for highest vaccination rate of any state in the country. How is West Virginia doing so well? We learned one part of the story. It starts with Chris Dorst, a photographer for the West Virginia Gazette Mail in the capital, Charleston. I have a total of about 30 years working at the paper. In late December, Chris's editor walked into his office and told him she'd seen a line of people in wheelchairs and walkers who looked to be in their 80s waiting outside of a health center to get the vaccine. So he went down there. I asked some people, are you to verify you're, you're in line to get shots? And they said, yeah, we're here hopefully to get our vaccinations. But the health department there didn't even have any vaccines ready to distribute yet. Dorst took pictures. One of them made the front page of the paper. And the next day, Major General James Hoyer saw it. He's the head of West Virginia's Joint Interagency Task Force for COVID-19 Vaccines. And he knew this was the problem he'd been hearing about. I heard a couple anecdotal stories from, from seniors who said, hey, I heard they might have vaccines, so I went down to, to, to show up because I want the vaccine. People didn't know where and when to go, so they just showed up. Hoyer has spent his career, 40 years of it, in the National Guard leading disaster responses in West Virginia. He doesn't like to talk about himself, so... Let's say that your wife was talking to her friends about you, and she was bragging on you a little bit and talking about what you're good at. What would your wife say that you do so well? Uh, I think uh, part of what she might say is I, I take advantage of being obsessive compulsive to get things done. <laughs> Here's what obsessed him. Those older folks standing online, they just had no information. A leader in a local community called to me and said, hey... I just heard from somebody that there is a Korean War veteran who is homebound who hasn't been able to get the vaccine. And when there's a veteran out there that's served their country that wants a vaccine, then damn it, it's my job to make sure that the task force is doing what it's doing. And we knew we needed to start to communicate better. One of the problems West Virginia was up against is that it is largely a rural state. 
the entire population is about 1.8 million people. Outside of a few cities, most people live in small towns separated by mountains and valleys. Some of West Virginia's 55 counties don't even have a single four-lane highway, which slows down the trucks that transport the COVID-19 vaccine. And you know how a lot of states are letting people make appointments online? Well, in parts of West Virginia, where as much as 30% of the population doesn't have access to high-speed internet, that's just not going to be possible. If you're talking about people, you know, over the age of, of 70 and in their 80s, number one, how many of them are internet savvy? And number two, West Virginia has suffered from, uh, you know, a lack of broadband. So what if they're in, in that county that doesn't have good internet access? What if they're the veteran that doesn't use social media? What do they all know and use? Either a regular dial phone or they may have a cell phone, but it may be a flip phone. The phone seemed like the thing. So Hoyer got his team together, and the simple solution they came up with? A hotline. A telephone hotline with folks answering questions about how and where to get a vaccine. Now, other states have tried this. In some, it has worked. In some, it hasn't. But West Virginia, given its other challenges, takes this hotline really seriously. After the hotline was up and running, one of Hoyer's old childhood friends called him. I've heard from people of my age who called me early on and said, hey, I live in Chicago. How do I get my mom and dad signed up for the vaccine? And so Hoyer tells him, call the hotline. So the friend calls me again and tells me that his parents had got in through the hotline and were now registered to get the vaccine. And so this phone line is getting it done. That is part of the West Virginia success story. The state governor gets a report on how that hotline is doing every day. The wait times are slightly too long for Hoyer's liking. How long are people waiting to talk to someone on the phone? So uh, about the last one that I looked at was about six-minute wait time. That doesn't sound bad at all to me. Yeah, no, well, no, it's not. But what that tells us is we probably need more more people manning the hotline. Major General Hoyer is not the type to celebrate a success until it's an unqualified success. And then a few weeks ago, Hoyer was getting ready to give a press conference about West Virginia's vaccination rates. And a colleague forwarded him an article with the numbers for that day. It included rates of vaccination by country. And I looked at the numbers. Israel is vaccinating per... 154.7. The next country was the United Arab Emirates, I believe, at 38.7. I pulled it up right before it started, looked at the numbers, and then I, I called Joe and I said, hey, Joe, what, what, are our, what are our numbers? And he sent me back 18.7. I'm like, holy crap. Well, if West Virginia was its own country, we'd be third at 18.7. I know you don't like to talk about your feelings, but tell me how that makes you feel. That tells me that we're doing our damn job. Major General James Hoyer is the head of West Virginia's Joint Interagency Task Force for COVID-19 vaccines. 
That story originally aired on NPR's Morning Edition on February 22nd. So compared with the rest of the world, West Virginia's vaccine rollout is impressive. But when you look beneath the surface, it also has not been equitable. One example, black residents have been vaccinated at a significantly lower rate than white residents. And a story earlier this year by the online news website Mountain State Spotlight reported that many rural and poor residents in West Virginia have to travel several hours to get a vaccine. Over the past month, West Virginia has worked to try to get more vaccines to black and Latino people and to folks in poorer, more rural regions. We wanted to check in on how this is going so far. We'll start with a look at how smaller clinics are reaching communities outside of city centers. WVPB's health reporter June Leffler reports. If you live in Kanawha County and are lucky enough to get scheduled for your vaccine shot, you'll probably end up driving downtown to the Charleston Coliseum and Convention Center. Most weekends, it's open for a mass vaccination clinic. But Kanawha Charleston Health Department Director Dr. Sherry Young says smaller clinics are just as essential. That way, her department can hit every part of the county, not just downtown Charleston. She's searching in every direction. I like to go north, south, east, and west and just kind of make our rotation throughout the county and go the furthest away from uh, the city of Charleston for the fact that those are the people that may have the hardest time getting there. With that idea in mind, the local health department hosted one of these small clinics in Rand, about 20 minutes east of Charleston. It was held at the local community center in a residential neighborhood with playgrounds nearby. A community clinic like this can be 10 times smaller, giving out a few hundred doses versus a few thousand. That day, the health department gave out just shy of 300 doses. The health department pulled names from the state's central pre-registration list and called folks based on their age and proximity to the clinic. But the department went a step further and also reached out to community leaders to get the word out in less formal ways. Reaching out to the mayors, to the volunteer fire departments, to the people who know that know somebody who needs to get vaccinated. That's how 63-year-old Rick Hutchinson found out. His sister got a call from the mayor of their small town, and she called him. I was on my way to Taze Valley to uh, do some work, and I turned around and thought this would be a good opportunity. Um, if I didn't get it today, it might be May or June before my age group gets it. So, While the health department is targeting a certain age group at the clinic, they also don't want to turn anyone away. Hutchinson was just shy of the state's recommended age requirement, but he was at the right place at the right time, and the health department seated him. Local health officials chose RAND because it's away from the city, but it also has a target demographic. A third of Rand's population is African-American. That's important because only 10% of African-Americans in West Virginia have been vaccinated, compared to 17% of whites. That disparity is another reason the department chose Rand for the clinic. Ronald Allen Jr., who is black, also sat waiting for his first shot. He's 48 and lives in St. Albans. He's not old by any stretch, but he has congestive heart issues that put him at serious risk if he were to catch COVID-19. He believes people with underlying conditions like his should be among the first to get the vaccine. Not trying to be, uh, you know, like selfish, but, you know, it's, uh, this is a very serious situation that the, that the world is dealing with right now. He knows the stakes. His sister died last year due to similar underlying conditions. 
He's not sure if she had COVID, but her last days were certainly impacted by the pandemic. You know, she was by herself and nobody could go see her. And it was, you know, it was really tough. Allen found out about the clinic from his church leader. Bishop Robert Haley III runs a predominantly black church on Charleston's west side. It's a place where Allen feels safe and valued and seen. He trusts Haley. Haley says the black community has a long-standing and legitimate mistrust of health providers. Medicine, like most institutions, has historically failed black patients. But Haley did not hesitate to tell Allen and his other church members to sign up and get the vaccine. It's so important that our community gets vaccinated because we are the group that this virus is attacking more than any, any other. Helping church members find resources and caring about their health is what Haley does every day. When he got vaccinated, he took a video and posted it to Facebook so others would feel safe getting the life-saving vaccine. As the vaccine rollout broadens, it's clear local health departments and community partners will have to meet patients where they're at, physically and emotionally. For Inside Appalachia, I'm June Leffler in Rand, West Virginia. June also recently traveled to Dunbar, West Virginia, where a faith-based nonprofit is helping get more vaccines to African-American communities. Again, June Leffler has more. Just northwest of Charleston is an unassuming church that serves Dunbar residents' spiritual needs. But on Saturday, Institute Church of Nazarene opened its rec center to meet the community's physical needs with the COVID-19 vaccination clinic for a mostly black clientele. They're doing a wonderful job with the setup and everything. That's 59-year-old Brenda Badger. She made the 10-mile drive from Charleston to get her first Moderna vaccine. She's just received her shot and is sitting on a fold-out chair in a small gymnasium. In her hands is an egg timer. Nurses want to make sure she doesn't have any adverse reactions before she goes home. When that goes off, I'm good. So I'm here for 15 minutes. I got about five more minutes. Badger says the whole process was quick, in and out. That's because this clinic is small. There's no massive lines. Just over 100 doses are available. But in this case, more isn't exactly better. The goal is to target mostly African Americans in Kanawha County. And it's run by a mostly African American staff. Everyone that day got their shot from one of two nurses. 63-year-old nurse Teresa Johnson volunteered her time today to give shots. She's been a nurse for 40 years. Oh, I love being a nurse. I've always wanted to be a nurse since I was little, never wanted to do anything else. The other nurse is 34-year-old Shamir Davis. She tells everyone to take care of themselves once they leave her table. Um, Some people feel some mild symptoms, maybe a fever, backache, things like that. Usually ibuprofen um, every six to eight hours takes care of that. Both nurses work full-time for the Partnership of African-American Churches, or PAC. The faith-centered nonprofit based in Charleston hosts an array of educational and medical services. Typically, Johnson treats people for opioid dependence, while Davis focuses on the more recent epidemic of COVID-19, bringing testing and now vaccines to African-American communities. And since the vaccine has been put out and since West Virginia is doing such a wonderful job of distributing it, we've decided to try to help with that effort and to make sure that the African-American communities are getting it as well. That's Reverend James Patterson's goal. He runs PAC and works with players throughout the state for support. He made sure he got on the governor's minority task force for COVID-19. 
forming a partnership with the state brought in funding and training resources. Now, PAC's hosting its first vaccine clinic on this day, with more to come. I asked Patterson why he felt it was important to organize a clinic on his own. And it, it, it has nothing to do sometimes with anything other than a cultural competency approach to reaching the, the community that you're trying to reach. And we can do that. PAC can do it because its staff looks like its clients. The work now is in the outreach, putting boots on the ground and making plenty of phone calls. Patterson says generally black folks don't need convincing when it comes to the vaccine. They know the stakes of not getting it. Like I said, my phone's been ringing off the hook, you know, last night and this morning for people wanting to get the vaccine. But PAC and local faith leaders help connect the dots. PAC pulls from the state's central pre-registration system. It also calls on church pastors to make their own lists. That's how Badger, the woman holding the egg timer, found out about the clinic. Patterson says black churches carry a legacy of trust that cannot be denied even today. But the black church is still the focal point and the center of the community. PAC's COVID-19 effort is expanding, with teams in Cabell, Kanawha, Raleigh, and Monongalia counties. They have hopes for a mobile clinic so they can reach almost every part of West Virginia. Patterson is asking for more funding from the state to realize that wider reach. For Inside Appalachia, I'm June Leffler in Dunbar, West Virginia. In the late 1800s, national magazine writers created the hillbilly and other stereotypes about Appalachia and its inhabitants. Ever since then, there's been no shortage of writing about the region by its visitors. What's rare is to find Appalachians with a platform to tell their own stories. But that's exactly what happened beginning in the late 1960s in Huntington, West Virginia, when a group of young people began printing pamphlets under the publishing label Appalachian Movement Press. Sean Slifer, a Pittsburgh artist who is also the creative director for the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum in Matewan, inadvertently came across one of the press's pamphlets a few years ago, which led him on a journey to learn more. The result is a new book titled So Much to Be Angry About, Appalachian Movement Press and Radical DIY Publishing, 1969-1979. to I asked Sean to read a blurb that the press used to describe itself and its work. So this is a mission statement of sorts that Appalachian Movement Press used in uh, the backs of some of their publications and in some of their catalogs. Uh, this is how they wrote about themselves in Firefox magazine for years. Appalachia is a colony. Our wealth is daily stolen from us. Our natural resources and our labor are exploited by giant corporations whose owners do not live here. Not only do these owners not live here, but they make no contribution to the process of production. Our natural resources rightfully belong to all of us, and it is by our labor alone that they are made useful to us in the form of products. Yet today we receive no value from our resources and a mere pittance for our labor. The greatest share of what is produced from our resources and labor goes into the pockets of these corporate owners who do nothing at all to earn it. They live and have become the richest people in America by exploiting us. We at the Appalachian Movement Press are dedicated to putting an end to the exploitation of our land and labor. 
So tell me about the book and, and how you how you tapped into this history and and what your work revealed. It's definitely true that I get excited about uh, digging at at stories that nobody else has has tried to unearth. Uh, you know that there's some kind of a unsolved mysteries type of <laughs> type of challenge to that. The process with Appalachian Movement Press really started from being handed a one of their pamphlets at a wedding that I was at at the Appalachian South Folklife Center in Pipestem uh, a few years back, and uh, it was a poetry pamphlet. And I don't I don't spend a lot of time reading poetry, but I was very curious. On the back, it said. Uh, Appalachian movement press and I knew about movement presses in the 1960s and 70s as part of of the left in the United States. Could do you mind just sidebar real quick and give us a, a thumbnail on what the movement press was? A movement press is basically a you know a group of people who own the means of production for printing their own posters and pamphlets and in some cases books, uh, any kind of publications that uh, are part of, say, a, a radical militant movement, or in some cases, a, uh, a sort of just a fringe creative political movement. I mean, it, it runs the gamut. But basically, what we're talking about in the 60s and 70s, when we talk about producing these things, is being able to run an offset press. And when you picked up this chat book or the zine, you saw this, this label about Appalachian Movement Press. Pick up the story there. Well, their logo really is just a coal miner's pick and it says Appalachian Movement Press in a circle around it and I really just thought that's cool uh you know I, <laughs> I've never heard of this and I took a picture of the logo and texted it to a couple of friends of mine who run a publication called Signal which is a, a global survey of political graphics and graphic culture and, and I, and, you know, I, I thought they would at least know what it was, but uh, texted them the picture and they said, wow, we never heard of this and challenged me to to go dig up the history of it and, and in fact, write an article for Signal. So when you started digging in, tell me about what you found. Who were these people um, that were running Appalachian Movement Press? They actually were a group of college students centered around Marshall University in Huntington who had originally spent a number of years trying to get official recognition uh, through the university for their chapter of SDS, the Students for a Democratic Society, in the late 1960s. They were publishing a newsletter called Free Forum at a local print shop, and then at some point that print shop got a lot of pressure from, from other people locally to, to quit publishing it, so they needed to get their own offset press. So these folks were all in their early 20s, students of various stripes who figured out how to run an offset press, branded it Appalachian Movement Press. And then originally, actually, their their goal had just been to be a really cut-rate job shop for whoever in the region needed pamphlets and flyers and, and whatnot printed for, for the activism that they were a part of. They did a lot of republishing... Appalachian people's history essays and and uh, the like that they thought were important for people to to read and have in hand and their distribution model was basically to distribute free or at cost to to low income people and and they had a subscription program and whatnot and just try to try to get this stuff out there 
I'm curious what qualities distinguish the Appalachian Movement Press versus its peers elsewhere in the country. What what makes them distinctive? Appalachian Movement Press was by Appalachians for Appalachians. Everything about it was focused on uh, the information itself. And so that created a design aesthetic. What I mean by that is that the design aesthetic felt very stripped down, very of the moment. Workmanlike is a term that a friend of mine used for it. It was not very fussy in terms of design. They were neither in communication with other movement presses, nor did were they particularly concerned, I, I think, with with what those movement presses were doing. It was about Central Appalachia. Sean, thank you so much. It's been a um, pleasure to talk to you. I appreciate your time. No, it's just, it's, it, I appreciate you asking me to talk about this. Today we've heard stories about places in Appalachia that are drawing visitors and newcomers, sometimes at a cost, like the New River Gorge. Its new national park status will only elevate its prominence among hikers, paddlers, and climbers. But longtime hunters see a loss of access to public land. It's the same with the real estate market right now. The region needs new residents to drive economic prosperity, but an influx of buyers can also squeeze out lower-income people and put stress on community infrastructure. Like we just heard, what attracts a lot of people to Appalachia is the environment. But nowhere is truly safe from extreme weather. Here in Floyd County, we've seen flash flooding and severe ice storms just in the last few years. And what if the legacy of an environmental disaster looms over your town? That's the case in so many places, including in my hometown of Clifton Forge, Virginia, which is next door to a Superfund site. But at the same time, throughout Appalachia, they remain stalwarts. Places like the Texas Tavern that hang on even as the world around them changes. I'm Mason Adams. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by John Wyatt, Dinosaur Burps, Kaya Cater, and Spencer Elliott. Roxy Todd is our producer. Jade Arthurholtz is the newest addition to our Inside Appalachia team. She's our associate producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Kelly Libby edited our show this week. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. I'm Mason Adams. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. Or find my individual account at Mason Adams, M-A-S-O-N-A-T-O-M-S. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There, you can also subscribe or download all of our stories. Or look for the Inside Appalachia podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs, 
to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.